For generations, the church has held Paul as one of the foremost examples of a missional life. In many ways, he's kind of become the mascot of missions. And what a strange mascot at that. Just think of the ironic twist. Paul, a former Pharisee whose zeal for the law led him to passionately persecute Christians, probably leading to the death of many Christians, now stands as an inspiration for all who aspire to take the gospel to places where it has never gone before. Now, when you consider the impact of his ministry and the way in which his work still sends reverberations today into our church today, then the church's hype about Paul begins to make sense. However, I don't think we would be thinking about Paul rightly if we think of him as some sort of spiritual superman. That tends to be the way we describe him. No one's like Paul. No one can do what Paul did. Uh, Paul just seems to have this special superhuman status in our minds. But in reality, the evidence of uh, who Paul was and what he was like would go completely against that. If you were to meet Paul, he's not probably the guy you would pick to be your lead pastor, just to be completely frank about it. He's a relatively unimpressive figure. One of his disciples uh, in the early church wrote about him, and the way he wrote about him was not all that flattering. He describes him as small in stature, having a bald head, possibly a unibrow, and a long crooked nose. Quite the handsome fella. He walked bow-legged and was nearly blind. And when he spoke, he was not eloquent. In fact, he probably stuttered quite a bit. Though it is impossible to verify this early church description of Paul, it corresponds with what his critics say about him in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. They, he, his critics talk, uh, talk about him in this way. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. In other words, he writes a big talk, but when we see him, he's nothing. Weak, frail, gangly old guy who doesn't even speak well. That said, for a man who's held such a lasting legacy in the church, He's not the charismatic superhuman that we often make him out to be. Unibrowed, bow-legged guy, with the legacy that he had, he's not all that superhuman. He's just a man, and a frail man at that. So what is it that makes Paul stand out? When we hear Paul, we tend to think of missional life. We tend to think of going overseas. We tend to think of going to foreign countries and spreading the gospel where it's never been named. Well, as Paul would tell you, anything impressive or effective about him should be attributed only to the work of Christ in him. He is a man, a mere man, who had been deeply impacted by the gospel, which is why Paul is a suitable model for a missional life for us today. You don't need to have a strong physique. You don't even need to have two eyebrows. You don't need to have good eyesight. Eloquent speech to serve the Lord and his church. You only need a missional heart that's been impacted by the gospel. That's what you need to serve the Lord. There's no other qualifications except for a holy life and a desire to be uh, living a holy life and a life that is impacted deeply by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Physical stature doesn't matter. Your energy, you don't have to be this hyper charismatic, energetic guy to be effective in ministry. You can be just like Paul, weak, frail, stuttering, bow-legged, unibrow, bald, and serve the Lord effectively. That should be good news for many of you. (laughs) Just saying. While it's true that Paul was specially called by Christ to become an apostle to the Gentiles, in every other aspect, he was just like you and I. His missional passion and endeavor is what made him unique, but it's something that can and should be replicated among Christians today. We can imitate Paul as Paul imitated Christ. The more we imitate Paul, the more we see the missional motivations that made Paul, Paul. So that said, if we were to take an inquisitive look into Paul's missional heart, and we were to ask, what is it that made his heart beat? What was it that made him tick? What attributes are a part of a missional heart? What would we find? I think we can take Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 33 as a case study. I think we find at least five attributes of a missional life that should characterize the hearts of God's people today. Weak and frail though we are, unimpressive and eloquent as we are, we can make an impact like Paul if we have a missional heart that models his. And to have that, we need to have these five attributes. First, we see that a missional life is one that will boldly call others to remember the gospel. Boldly call others to remember the gospel. Paul has just spent a great deal of space explaining the gospel. He's, he's explained the truth of justification to the Roman church. Now, given how much space he's given for the gospel, you would think that they are really messed up. But that's not really what the case is. In fact, it doesn't seem like the Romans were making a mess of things at all. Paul insinuates that things seem to be going fairly well. He writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now that's bizarre. A church that is described as being filled with goodness, filled with knowledge, and mature enough to make disciples leaves me wondering why did he feel the need to write Romans in the first place? Like I would think Romans would be great for the Galatians, right? Or the letter of Romans might be good for the Corinthians. But why would the letter to the Romans be such a necessity to a good, full of goodness, full of knowledge, mature, disciple-making church. That's not, that's not who I would have thought needed the letter. So if you're to ask Paul, why did you feel like you had to write to them? If they're such good people, if they're already filled with the knowledge of all these things, why in the world would you write an entire letter, 16 chapters, to someone who's already doing it so well? I think his answer would simply be this, because they need to remember it because they need to remember it. Even with things going well, church numbers could be swelling, budgets could be full, all the ministry positions could be full, leaving no volunteer needs at all in the church, and still, the church needs to be reminded of the important truths that define us as the people of God. 
We, like the Romans, need to be reminded that all are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. We need to be refreshed in the truth that we become right with God by faith alone in Christ alone. We need to be retold and retold and retold of God's gracious work in bringing Jews and Gentiles together in the same family of God. We need to be forced into singing Spanish and English songs together to remember that it is not a national church, but an international church that God is building. We need to be forced to reckon with the scriptures over and over and over again. But why do we need such reminders? Because we are a forgetful people. The reality is, is in our fallenness, the moment we stop talking about God's redemption and grace is the moment it gets it is put out of mind and out of sight. It didn't take long for Israel to forget about the plagues and the miracles done in Egypt and the ways that God had rescued them before they start missing the melons of Egypt, wishing that they could go back there. We had meat. Yeah, but you were also slaves. They had to be reminded through the Passover time and time again, eating things like bitter herbs to remind them that it wasn't great, okay? It was bitter. It was terrible. It was bad. It was slavery. They needed to eat marar, right? The, the, uh, the bitter herbs with that, also the brick mortar apples, just to remember that it was tough labor that they were saved out of. They had to rehearse it time and time again. And in the same way, we have to remember the gospel time and time and time again. We can never afford, the church can never afford to stop speaking the gospel. Because the moment we do, we lose ourselves we forget. We don't outgrow it. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how many Sunday school classes you've been to. I don't care if you remember back when you were two years old and you still remember the felt board story. You never graduate beyond your need for the gospel. You stop breathing, you die. You stop speaking the gospel, you forget it, and it changes you. And the disaster that comes from a church that forgets the gospel is unbelievable. The ramifications that come from a church that forgets the reality of the gospel is disastrous in this world. Without a reminder that we have all sinned and without Paul's reminder, like in Romans 3, that describes us as, as once being people who had venom, right? That we were snake-like serpents that tried to destroy other people. Without a message that reminds us that we have all sinned and naturally stand guilty before God, the thing that first happens is we begin to see elite and judgmental people rise up in this very congregation. Elitism pops up. The moment I forget that I was sinful and condemned along with the rest of humanity is the moment I begin to think that maybe I'm better than everyone else. Forgetting my own former depravity, we begin shaking our heads and condemning others whose sins we consider more sinful than our own. We ignore the heterosexual pornography because that homosexual behavior is way worse. We ignore our own gossip sessions, but we will point it out anytime someone gossips about us. That kind of hypocritical nature is what comes from a heart that forgets it was once sinful and damned. We have to be reminded that on our own we were condemnable. 
but God giving his grace. You see, the moment that we forget that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, we begin looking to external things, our good deeds, our holy nature, the NCAA college team we root for, our opinions, how often we go to church, what kind of Bible we use, all kinds of things as proof and hope of our justification. We then unfairly divide from, cut off, and turn away others who we deem unfit to be considered God's people, forgetting that it's the Lord who builds his house. And the one thing that brings people in is the gospel and faith in the gospel, not agreement with our opinion. So we need the gospel to remind us time and time again of who we are, where we've been, and where we are now. So Paul writes so that the gospel will continue to be spoken and thereby remembered among the Roman believers. He doesn't ever want them to stop talking about it. He doesn't want them to stop singing about its truths and worship, preaching its precepts from the pulpit, applying its implications in our small group. Because he knows the moment all that ceases is the moment we forget. And our forgetfulness leads to gospel drift. Gospel drift leads to death. And not just ours, but the community around us that needs us to verbalize the gospel clearly. A missional life is not one that's so concerned about everything else. A missional life is one that wants the gospel to be remembered, rehearsed, and spoken time after time after time. Because a missional life understands that we cannot afford to forget. A second aspect of a missional life is that it comes with a calling to do the priestly work of discipling others. This priestly calling is one of the reasons Paul feels compelled to write to these Roman believers. As he describes his own role in the church, Paul says that God has given him grace to become a minister, literally a servant of Jesus to the Gentiles. He then labels his work as a priestly service of the gospel of God that has the goal of preparing Gentiles to become an acceptable offering to God. Now think about what Paul was doing here. Just as a priest, he, he slaughters the animal, right? He cuts it up and he places it on the altar. He situates everything perfectly. He gets the wood ready and he gets the offering ready so that the person who's making the offering will make an acceptable offering to God. Paul is doing that very same work of preparing an offering on behalf of the Gentiles for God. He'd come into a new place. He would reason with them from the scripture, showing them that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the one and only savior of the nations. And as people began to believe the gospel, he would then teach them how to live in the gospel. He never just preached the gospel and left. He never just preached the gospel, wrote down their name, put a tally mark and then left and said, we're good. They've heard, they prayed. No, he taught them. The gospel has demands. The gospel has implications. The gospel is, is lived out when husbands are taught how to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Masters were taught how to not see their slaves as mere slaves anymore, but to see them as brothers in the gospel. People were taught how to avoid gossip, sexual immorality, and divisiveness. And slowly but surely, these Gentiles were discipled into becoming the holy people of God a people made ready to honor King Jesus with their lives. 
It is this goal of helping a person become an acceptable offering to God that makes discipleship such an important part of our mission as a church. You see, we're not trying to make good Christians. We're not trying to make good churchgoers. We're trying to help people become ready for the day that they meet their Lord and Savior. We're trying to help people order their lives and structure their lives in such a way that they're ready to receive their king when he returns for them. We want to see people in all stages of life prepared to glorify God with who they are and what they do. Imagine the beauty of seeing spouses speaking to each other uh, as if every word they said was a sacrificial gift to the Lord. Every word, every sentence that they spoke to their spouse as a gift to God. Imagine college students and teenagers being taught how to honor God with their every action and their every thought. Imagine people in their golden years being reminded that they have a mission and that they are to use the remainder of their time loving others and preparing others to see Jesus. You see, as believers, we are marching forward to the great day when we'll see the Savior face to face. That's when the offering will be made. Our goal then, as a church, is to see people made ready. This is the need for preparation. This is the need for discipleship as people are working together to ready themselves. You know, the New Testament is filled with this image of helping people get prepared as an offering, as a sacrifice for the Lord. It also uses the image of a bride getting ready for her wedding day. You see, there's a day coming when Christ, the bridegroom, will return for the bride, the church. And just as you brides have spent weeks and months leading up to the wedding day, preparing, getting dresses ready, figuring out who's going to do your hair, making sure that everything is ordered and ready so that when that day comes, you will be ready to meet your bridegroom down the aisle. So also the church is busy at this moment getting ready for the great wedding day. One day the bridegroom will come and the wedding celebration of the lamb will begin. And on that day, as it says in Revelation 19, the bride of Christ will have made herself ready. Can you imagine? Just put yourself into the future for a moment. You hear this amazing shout. Jesus has come. Every bad and wicked thing is done away with. Things are about to get made right. Things are about to be made new. Resurrection's about to happen. But the first order of business is a feast. And the great announcement is made. The bride has made herself ready. Well, who's the bride? Well, that's you. What is she wearing? Well, it says that she wears the bright white garments of purity and goes on to say that those bright white garments are the righteous deeds of the saint. Every act of love we've done throughout history adding to this wedding dress for the great day. Every time you cross an aisle to pray with someone, every time you sit down with coffee to meet with someone, every time that you give someone a hug who really needs it, every time that you share the gospel with people who've never heard, every time you've given of your own resources to help others continue in the faith, every time you've given, every second that you've given to God's people to make people ready, all of that coming together into this beautiful white dress, Christians throughout the ages, adding to the hem, to the veil, 
to the shoulders, to the lace, all being prepared for the great wedding day to come. Every single action, never forgotten, but contributing to the wedding dress of the bride of Christ. Have you ever thought about it that way? Have you ever, ever thought about why it, it matters? You see, churches should not be trying to convince people to engage in work like teaching toddlers the gospel. Pastors should not be begging people to go out and share the gospel with their neighbors. You get to contribute to the dress. You get to contribute to the making of the wedding dress that the bride will wear. It is your honor and joy to do that. To come to Awana and to hear kids scripture, memorize scripture and they will remember you forever. I know you doubt it, but they will. And more importantly than that, God will remember it forever. Every piece that you have, every piece that you bring, every moment coming and adding and preparing the bride for her great wedding day. And that's something I promise you, the bridegroom will never forget. Churches need to be active and alive, contributing to that great day. Knowing that at the end of the day, the bride is going to be marching an aisle. An announcement will be made. The bride has made herself ready. And then we will sit and feast in the glory and in the beauty of our king forever. That's why you older people, I should say more experienced people, seasoned people, veterans of life, should be grabbing coffee with young dads and moms like me who want desperately to learn from you how to order and run our families in a way that would honor God. That's why you seasoned people should not sit back in church and say, I don't know anybody. <laughs> Nobody says hi to me. Join in the work. Cross the aisle. Hug. Pray for. Meet with. You know how many young moms would just adore you if you held their baby for an hour because they're tired of holding the baby and don't want to admit that to anybody. Do you know how many young men would love to meet with a father-like or grandfather-like figure and just pick your brain for an hour, how to honor God, how, to, like, how, do, how does a young man sitting over here in our youth ministry, how does a young man look for a godly wife? How do the young women get themselves ready for life in general? You know how much pressure there is on young people today? My friends, Paul models a missional life, Paul wouldn't have waited for Timothy to invite him out for coffee. He grabs Timothy by the scruff of the neck and he says, you don't know you need coffee with me, but we're getting it. That's one thing I've never understood. Yes, in logic, young people should be coming to older people and asking them, teach me. They don't even know they need it. Take it to them. If you wait to get invited into a discipleship relationship, you'll never do it. People don't know what they need. 
And yet it's your job and your role as God's people to prepare the bride of Christ, to get young people ready for the day when Jesus returns. Steve Ivey, about once a quarter, invites himself to take my son out for ice cream. I never really think about it. I never really plan it. I trust Steve. We've vetted each other well over the years. And every time Timothy comes back a little more prepared to be a man of God. My friends, we need to be doing that all across the board here. There are people here that are striving to figure out what to do. Young married couples, you know how hard it is to find volunteers to host a young married couples group? Well, we don't have time. My friends, it's the most important thing you can be doing right now. To have young couples at your table to say, this is how you honor God with your marriage. Let me answer your awkward questions and let me, let me listen to you as you vent so I can love you and prepare you for the great day when your marriage will be presented on the altar of Christ's return and so that he can look at your marriage and say, well done. That's what we want, right? The newlyweds have a story 30 years from now of how you stepped into their lives and now they have lived faithfully for 30 years together because some seasoned veteran of life sat down with them and loved them well. A missional life is one that wants to see discipleship happen. It's a priestly work of preparing people to be an offering. If you're not doing it, you're missing out on your role as a priest. That is what God has called you to do. So, a missional life comes with a commitment to remind others about the gospel, not just telling new people about the gospel, but, but, tell, but telling Christians, each other, about the gospel, reminding each other. Next, it comes with uh, a commitment for discipleship. And then finally, we see here, a third, not finally, but a third attribute we see here is a missional is, a life is one that is ambitious to see the gospel advance to every nation. Paul mentions how he's taken the gospel from Jerusalem to Elycrium, which would have incorporated today's parts of Croatia. And if you look on the map from Jerusalem to Croatia, it's a, it's a huge expanse. It's still a lot of time in a boat, right? A lot of time to take the gospel and to preach the gospel not where Christ had already been named. It's not because Paul was prideful. It wasn't that he had a special view of his ministry that he couldn't work with others. He worked with others. He partnered with others. He left behind coworkers so that they could continue advancing the work. No, but he wanted to see the gospel go places where it had never been heard. He wanted people who had never understood the good news to hear it, to understand it, and to live it. He quotes Isaiah 52, which if you know the context of Isaiah 52, speaks of the suffering servant, Jesus. The suffering servant who goes on to sacrifice himself to make the many righteous, but through his sacrifice brings the nations to himself so that, they all, so that they all are coming and finding hope in him. Paul calls himself, he attributes the suffering servant text to himself now. Is Paul being blasphemous? Is he calling himself Jesus? Well, no. He sees himself as a continuation of the work of Christ. 
He sees himself as an extension of the work that Christ began when he came down from heaven, died on the earth, resurrected, and drew the nations to himself. I don't know what we think about Jesus, but Jesus is not sitting up at the right hand of the Father in a lazy boy watching football games. Any gospel growth that we see is happening because Jesus is still working. You go back through Acts and you see time and time again where the disciples describe their own work and they say it is the Lord who added to these numbers. Wait a second, the disciples were the ones that preached the gospel and all these people converted. And yet they said, yes, but Jesus is the one who's doing it. Peter and John heal a man at the beautiful gate and they say it is the Lord who has made him well. My friends, in a missional life, we're not doing our own work. A missional life understands it's not our work for Jesus. It's Jesus's work through us. Paul could attribute the suffering servant text to himself because he knew that the suffering servant was working in him and through him to continue the work to the nations. And he knew that Jesus is going to add every tribe nation, and tongue, which means that every people group, every person on this planet is in our sights when it comes to the gospel. We are ambitious for the gospel to be heard where it has not been named. It was ambition that set Paul's eyes on the horizon. He'd been busy going to gospel places. He'd been incredibly taken up in this work, which is why he hadn't seen the Romans yet. They were a thriving church, a growing church, and he still has never been. He had never seen them. And he desperately longs to see them. But then he goes on to say, but when I come, it's just to come visit you for a short while because then I'm on the Spain. He's barely gonna land. He's gonna be refreshed. He's gonna stay until he's satisfied. Then he's gonna be helped by them on his journey to Spain. Why Spain? Why does he mention Spain? He mentions it like three times. Spain, in Paul's day, was the very end of the world. A lot of people thought that if you sailed past Spain and got a few miles onto the horizon, you'd fall straight off the side of the earth. Because it was flat, right? Some people thought so, not everybody. There's literally the, whoever said still is, (laughs) Lord rebuke you. Um, (laughs) They thought that they'd sail straight off the side of the earth, and that was the end of the world. Well, Paul's like, well, Christ has called me to take the gospel to all nations, to the ends of the earth. Didn't Jesus say that? To the ends of the earth? Where's the ends of the earth? Well, it's in Spain. That's what Paul believed. Paul was like, that's the edge of the known world. That's beyond civilization. America hadn't been discovered yet. Columbus hadn't sailed yet. So this is the end of the world. Can you imagine having such a passion for the gospel that you yourself sign up, bow-legged, unibrowed self who can't hardly talk very well to take the gospel to the edge of the known world? When we hear the word ambitious, or ambition, we tend to carry these negative connotations. Ambition, my friends, is not wrong. It's something that's missing in a lot of churches today. Selfish ambition, self-gain is a sin. But to be ambitious for the gospel, to be ambitious so that everybody on your street knows and sees you living a gospel life, 
and hears the gospel from your mouth to be able to say, there's not gonna be a young person in this church that I haven't prayed for. For you to say that there's not, for us to have an ambition to say that there's not one person in this church who will have to scrounge up money for a mission trip next year. We're gonna send them. To be ambitious like that is a part of being a, having a missional life. You realize it's because ambitious people like Paul took the gospel to Spain and then ambitious people took the gospel to England and then ambitious people brought the gospel to the East Coast and then ambitious people thought, why not Texas? And ambitious people brought the gospel here. Imperfectly, mind you, but they did. It's humbling to think about that. The great cloud of witnesses that moved and were motivated to bring the gospel all the way here so that me and my family could sit in the glory of Jesus. We're coming close to an end. Along with these other attributes, a missional life is one that is passionate to see the church be the church. You know, a lot of people ask me, how do you know when your faith is immature, you're mature? I I get that question. What are some of the marks of Christian maturity? I know there's a lot of them, but one of the, the clear signs of an immature faith is one that is marked with drama, gossip, and divisiveness in the church. While a mature faith is one that is characterized by joy in seeing the church function as it should. Paul tells the Romans that he's going to visit them on his way to Spain, but before he does so, he's got to head down to Jerusalem and deliver aid to the saints. You see, the churches in Macedonia where Paul had just come and Achaia had raised funds just because they wanted to support the poor people in Jerusalem. There had been a famine, people were starving, so the Macedonians and the Achaeans decided that they were going to pitch together and pull together this great aid for Jerusalem saints. And they did so willingly, as they should, not begrudgingly, not for accolades, but because they wanted to, because it was their joy to. Paul goes so far to say that the Macedonians owed it. Now that's weird. How does a mercy, how did they owe mercy fund to the Jerusalem Christians? Well, he says that they owed it to the Jerusalem Christians. Now, once again, as we have seen in several passages in Romans, Paul picks up the theme that those who have received grace are indebted to give grace to others. If you have received grace, you are in debt to then give that grace to other people around you. He he explains, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. They should, they should do that. Now think of the beauty of what's happening. For generations, there had been a sharp divide between Jews and Gentiles. Macedonians were godless, pagan, idol-worshiping people. Achaeans, godless, pagan, idol-worshiping people. And yet a transformation has occurred. The gospel dropped on Macedonia like a nuclear bomb and people were changed forever. These people, so touched by the gospel, decide that they want to pull together from their own funds to send it back to the Jews who once hated them, who once had nothing to do with them. Those egotistical elitists, that's what they, that's what they believed about Jesus. And I won't say I believe, but I'm just saying 
that Gentiles believed in those days that Jews were egotistical, elitist. They wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't even come into a Gentile house. They were unclean, unworthy. These formerly unclean Macedonians now say, let's pitch up our monies to help these people who once thought they were better than us. And they wanted to support the Jewish Christians all as an act of solidarity. This, these people who had been so divided and hateful to one another, now raising funds and support for one another. Now sacrificially giving as a reminder that though they live in two completely different areas, though they come from two completely different people groups, one group is idol-worshiping pagan, was once idol-worshiping pagans, and the other group were temple-going Jews, and now they've been brought together into the same singular family. The walls have come down, so the money that the Macedonians send is money to help their own family, their brothers in Christ. Man, if we would see that the same way when we send support to China. Chinese believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. We could see that way about churches that are around us, five minutes down the road from us. Brought together into the same family, unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in these days, it's easy to be cynical and overly critical of the church and its people. I'm a pastor, I, I, get, all, I get it all. I, I see your email. <laughs> that you, I don't always respond to it because it's not, I don't want to. Um, <laughs> however, even with all of its problems that are easy to spot and impossible to ignore, a missional life learns to look beyond the dross that's presently there to see the gold that is there and will be even clearer in the days to come. It considers the amazing work of God among his people and bask in the beauty of the progressive transformation. You realize when we, when we complain about a church, now I'm not, I'm not talking about gospel issues, right? When a church is living gospel-like, but you become cynical or you become overly critical of those people, you realize you're critiquing the work of God among his own people. He is doing things on his own time and in his own way. A missional heart loves the church, sees the church not for what she is, but for what she will become. A missional church, a missional heart, a missional person is not one that sits back and cynically complains about everything and over criticizes God's people. It's one that sees the failures that every church has and at that moment decides to give grace and love. Why? Because Christ has given that grace and love to them. It's a church functioning as it should. It needs to be a church. We need to be people who are so missionally minded that we are encouraged and long to see the church function as the church. We shouldn't be happy about drama. We shouldn't be motivated by seeing people doing things that you know, give us fodder for gossip sessions. We should be encouraged that God is working among his people. The Macedonians and the Achaeans had their problems. Believe me, they're recorded. They were an unhealthy church in many aspects. And yet they were healthy in the aspect that they were committed to the gospel 
and they loved God's people. And that's what Paul decides to write down in Romans 15. Is that these are people who have decided to be the church and he basks in the glory of that. He looks for evidences of God's sanctifying work. Paul knew the problems of the early church better than any of us would ever know. It describes as him having to carry the burden of the church. I mean, people who hated him, schisms happening. He knew all of that. And yet, even in spite of all that, he would not allow life circumstances or the church's failures to turn him into a cynic. Instead, he sought to be encouraged and to encourage others to be the church that God has called them to be and remains motivated and focused on that. We see one final aspect of a missional heart and we can deal with it pretty quickly. One final attribute of a missional life is that Paul simply loved to be with God's people. He longed for it. After 2020 and 2021, I think we have seen our own ability to kind of sigh at, eye roll about God's people. Ah, gotta go to church. A missional life is one that longs to be with God's people. Wants to be, he says it many times. He's had the desire for years. And Lord willing, he's finally gonna be able to go. He's gonna deliver these funds, and then his hope is to go straight there and see them. He's not coming for just a layover. He's not just gonna pop in and say hello. As he says in verse 24, he wants to enjoy their company. The Greek in that is to actually be satisfied, satiated, by their company. When was the last time you enjoyed being with believers? Enjoyed being together. Fought for opportunities to be together. To be the epitome of what Paul says in verse 29, the fullness of the blessing of Christ. How awesome would it be if we lived in such a way that we got a reputation like Paul that when people saw us coming, they're saying, here comes a blessing of Christ. Can you imagine if we saw each other in that way? Each other coming in to be a blessing together, striving together in prayer like he asked them to in verse 30. That's real love. Now, the sad irony of all this is that Paul did eventually make it to Rome, just not in the way that he expected or in the timeline. He gets to Jerusalem. God did not answer the prayer to deliver him from the unbelievers in Judea. Instead, God's will knew better, right? And Paul was imprisoned. He was in prison for several years, and then he finally got to go to Rome as a prisoner. Got to see Rome under house arrest. Got to meet with the believers who came to him. And yet in all of this, you still see Paul coming to Rome, whether in chains or without chains, with joy. Why? So that he could be refreshed by the friendship of believers. Though few of us have a love for the church like Paul did, you know you have a missional heart when you long to be with God's people. It's not a chore, it's not a task, it's not a burden. This is God's people, the bride of Christ, the sons and daughters of the high king. You being a blessing of Jesus to them and they being a blessing of Jesus to you. That is what a missional heart wants more than anything when it comes to a church. 
Now, I know there's some of you like me who read this text, and I'm like, I'm far from many of these things. I don't always want to be with God's people. I don't always have an ambition to see the gospel go places it's not been named. Like you, I wake up on Monday in a bad attitude. Like you, by Wednesday, I start wondering if I'm even a believer. Like you, by Friday, I start thinking Sunday's coming, right? And like you, I need the ice thawed off of my cold heart from time to time. How did Paul become the missional person that we know him to be today? How did he get this heart? Well, it came from looking long into the gospel. To consider the fact that Jesus died for him and for every believer that names Christ. To know that Jesus purchased this body with his blood and his broken self so that believers in this room could join together and sing to remember that Jesus had risen again so that he could reign on high as the living and resurrected Savior over this church. What would he say to someone who says, Paul, I have none of these attributes that I've seen in Romans 15? He'd probably put his hand on your shoulder and he'd sympathetically pat your shoulder. He knows we're sinful. He knows that we don't always see the church the way we should. And then I think he would gently whisper to you, remember the gospel. Keep looking at it. Mull it over. Think about it. Sit down on your back porch and think about what it means that Jesus died and rose again for you. And let the white hot embers of the gospel melt your cold, icy heart toward his people. Gospel-centered people Missional people are people whose hearts have been thawed by the gospel message to love others well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that the gospel thaws our heart. Father, we know that Paul wasn't perfect. We know he was just a mere man and, an, and a fallible man at that. And yet, Father, crooked nose, unibrow, and bowed legs, Father, he was able to serve you because of a heart filled with the gospel. God, I pray that we will do the same in our weakness, in our feeble bodies, in our failings, in our immaturities, in our rough spots, Father, that we will still live to honor you because of the great gospel that you have brought us in Jesus. Let us be a missional people. Let us be a gospel-centered people. Let us be people like Paul. Let us imitate him as he imitated Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.